Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we are recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today we're going to talk about hiring a dedicated business development professional. And I started to become uh, interested in this topic uh, a couple of years ago when I read a book called uh, Built to Sell. And I forget who wrote it, but if you Google it, you'll find it. Uh, and, and if you're interested in kind of the process of, of building a business that has value that can be sold and monetized, uh, I highly recommend it. It's, it is not a technical book. In fact, it's, it's basically a book that sets up a, a hypothetical marketing services firm and, and walks through the conversations that take place to understand where value comes from and what it takes to build a business to, to sell it. And, and one of the things that struck me about, um, one of the pieces of advice they give in that book is, um, d does your company have the ability to sell when the owner themselves is not doing the selling? And, and I think that's a really smart, I think it's a really smart point because if, if the revenue is primarily dependent upon the owner, then when the owner sells and drops their keys off and they move to a condo in Costa Rica, then, you know, what value remains in the business? Perhaps some, but not a whole lot. And so what I found myself doing as I appraise businesses myself and as I advise people on building their businesses and preparing to sell them is to think about very early, you know, how can you create systems and resources and processes and assets that generate revenue when, when you're away, right? And, and the litmus test I often ask people, if I, I'll, I'll ask this in a, uh, a management interview you know, if you go away and you're abroad and your cell phone breaks for six weeks, what happens to your business? Um, and, and sometimes, it's, yeah, the business is great. And other times it's, well, I probably don't have a business when I come back. And, and that's very telling. And, and typically the reason that you don't have a business when you come back is because you don't have somebody that is a full-time salesperson. So to me, that's a very important inflection point. Now, here's the challenge. And the other reason I think this is a very interesting topic um, as, uh, as I approach my 50th trip around the sun here, I've seen a lot of salespeople come and go in a number of roles and a number of places where I've been, whether it's been in, in services, venture capital, technology, and, and, and so forth. And one conclusion I've drawn over the years is I think that the hardest role to hire for in any company is sales. And, and the reason I think that is is you know not only because I've I've seen a pretty high failure rate over the years, but because um, quite candidly, salespeople may not necessarily be successful selling what they're supposed to sell, but they're often very good at selling themselves. 
And so as a business owner, how do you kind of cut through the veneer and the facade and, and find out not only can that person sell, are they willing to sell, right? It's, it's amazing. If you read sales books, you'll, you'll read about how salespeople themselves are reluctant to sell, right? There's something called call reluctance and so forth. You know, that's what they signed up for. But it's still hard to get salespeople to do that. So, you know, step one is decide that you want to have a, a dedicated business development person. Uh, second, then, is how do you make an assessment as to whether or not that person can and is actually willing to do what is asked of them in that role? And then uh, third and finally, and I see this you know, in, in professional services, um, h- how, do you, how do you hire somebody and structure that role so that if you're not a practitioner, you can still be have success in that role? Because, you know, and, and I being in the accounting industry, uh, we're certainly guilty of this. It's, it's tempting to fall into the trap of saying, well, you know, unless you can give technical advice on the spot, you can't possibly sell. It has to be somebody that's a really good account, lawyer, business appraiser, um, you know, foundation repair specialist, whatever it is. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, it, now, I'm not saying that it's easy. It's hard. Um, but there's a big difference between hard and impossible. So I hope with that preamble, I've convinced you that this is a, a, a rich topic. And if you're a business owner and executive decision maker, uh, I think you're going to learn a lot uh, today from the two guests that we have. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guests. And, and these are two people that have been uh, good friends of mine in the community for a, a very long time. I consider them not only friends, but I consider them the mentors and often even if I don't necessarily speak with them as often as I would like, I think of them a lot, especially when I have a decision that I have to make. I think, I ask myself, you know, what, what would they do? Or if I were talking to them, what would they say? And I know them well enough that I know what they're going to say. <laughs> if I have to ask the question, I've already, I've already failed. Um, so first up, uh, in no particular order, then I just simply decided to write these bios in that, that order, is uh, my dear friend Susan O'Dwyer, who is a director at Aprio, which, of whom I'm an alumnus, and they're a friendly competitor of ours, uh, cor- and is director of corporate citizenship and community relations. Uh, Aprio is a premier CPA-led professional services firm where thriving associates serve thriving clients. And on a side note, I've always thought that rebranding is, is, is fantastic and very effective. Um, their purpose is clear. They advise clients that they can achieve what's next, whatever that may be. Since its founding in 1952, APRA has grown to be the largest independent full-service CPA-led professional services firm based in Atlanta, Georgia. They have over 450 partners and associates that provide their best thinking and personal commitment to every client, demonstrating a passion for their work that fuels their client success. Susan especially lies in the technology and venture capital industries, and she's uh, uh, one of the founders of something called Shaking the Money Tree from PwC. And uh, if you've ever... If you've ever read or relied upon that publication, uh, that is at least in part her brainchild. So thank her. Um, She's known throughout the Atlanta business community for her passion for connections, which resulted in Susan being recognized as one of the top 50 women you need to know in Atlanta by the Atlanta Business Chronicle as one of the 100 most influential people in the tech community and as a finalist for the 2012 TurkNet Leadership Character Awards. As the Director of Corporate Citizenship and Community Relations, Susan acts as the main point of coordination regarding civic and community activities throughout the firm. Her role is to maintain open communication with civic leaders and community partners, creating goodwill on behalf of APRIO. So having read that 
why is she here? Well, before she took that role, she was her director of business development. I'm guessing for about seven or eight years or so, where frankly, she kicked butt. Um, And uh, then she was later promoted into, into this particular role. But um, don't, don't, don't let the kind face uh, fool you. She understands her stuff. Um, Some of her affiliations are the American Israel public affairs committee, the Ron Clark Academy, where she's a board member and a big cheerleader for that organization, the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce's Technology Marketing Committee's Venture Capital Program chairperson, and she and her son also led efforts for relief for Tuscaloosa, Alabama, after their devastating tornadoes in 2011. And I wish we had time because I I would love to get her to talk about her Lady Gaga story, which I tell all the time, and it just just busts a gut. Um, but maybe we'll have to have her back for a second podcast. So. Uh, Susan, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. And sitting to her left is my other dear friend, Anne McDonald, who is Director of Business Development of Corporate Technology and Healthcare IT at Morris Manning & Martin, a role she has held for 13 years. Like Susan, Anne is one of the most respected people in the Atlanta technology community. Morris Manning & Martin is an American Law 200 law firm with national and international reach. They dedicate themselves to the constant pursuit of their client's success. To provide their clients with optimal value, they combine market-leading legal services with a total understanding of their needs to maximize effectiveness, efficiency, and opportunity. Morris Manning enjoys national prominence for its real estate, corporate, litigation, technology, healthcare, intellectual property, energy and infrastructure, capital markets, environmental, international trade and insurance practices, basically everything. Morris Manning has offices in and around Atlanta, Raleigh, Durham, Savannah, and Washington, D.C. Man, I would love to get transferred to the Savannah office. I love that city. Um, prior to her role at Morris Manning, Anne has been a regional sales director at InvestShare, a managing consultant for Gallup Organization, and vice president of marketing and e-commerce in various roles at Wash Healthcare Solutions for over 10 years. Some of Anne's affiliations and activities include chair of the board of directors of Technology Executives Roundtable, member of the board of directors of the FinTech Society, the Technology Association of Georgia, member of the board of directors of the Southeast Software Association of the Technology Association of Georgia, and past chair of the Southeast Medical Device Association annual conference. Anne, thanks for coming on. Thank you. So um, you guys are pretty busy. So thank you for finding time to come on the program and come out here to be on it. (laughs) Asking people to travel in Atlanta is... uh, in itself, a big ask. So, Anne, let me start with you. I mean, we've, we've done sort of the formal introductions, but how would you describe your role at Morris Manning? When you do your own elevator pitch, what do you say? Well, <clears throat> let's look at it. What do I get paid to do? Okay. So, I could tell you my title, uh, but but really, I get paid to help bring in new clients. And that's through lead generation. It's meeting with uh, referral sources, strategic partners. It's being part of technology, the technology ecosystem and community to meet companies and refer those companies into our firm for legal services. And Susan, how about you? And, and let's talk more. I'd like to start with your, your current role and then kind of go back to the, your prior role in terms of business development. How would you describe your current role at Aprio? So my current role is to identify nonprofits where we can make a difference through my colleagues' financial background by serving on those boards. And uh, as a result, further our reach, our footprint across the community – and identify new opportunities where we might not have met those executives in their role as 
a CEO or CFO of whatever company it is, but instead through a mutual shared passion for whatever the cause of the nonprofit is, people have the opportunity to connect. And and before that, you were director of business development, and you were the grand poobah of sales <laughs> for Aprio, formerly known as Hey Beferragini Wynn. Talk about, talk about that role. So that role started because uh, the firm realized that if they were going to grow the way they wanted to, uh, at the time that I joined the firm 12 years ago, I don't think there were even 100 people there. And if the firm wanted to grow the way they wanted to, they're going to need to cast a much wider net. So I uh, was recommended to the firm and joined to open doors that they had not even thought to knock on before. Um, my my Rolodex was very different than the Rolodex of the people that were already there. My job is not to supplant um, the partners. My job is to, or was, well, still is, to um, supplement what they are working who they were working with by identifying additional, just like Ann, additional clients, prospects, referral sources that can bring new business to the firm. And and to be clear, Susan, you're not an accountant and you're not a lawyer, correct? That's correct. CPA is just three letters in the alphabet to me. No, I'm not an accountant. Yeah, and same here, right? I, to, I, I tell people if, if I answer an accounting question, it's instantly malpractice. <laughs> I don't even do my own taxes. So, um, so, so. As non-practitioners, how do you think that that impacted or impacts your ability to to communicate the value of what you're selling to the marketplace? Do you think that gives you a different perspective that is helpful? Do you think it holds you back in some way? What What do you guys think? And why don't you give it? Why don't you start? Okay. Well, it's um, I have a background in business, and I've as you said, never worked for a law firm before. But when I talk to companies, uh, I talk about their business with them, ask them questions about it, and find out what their needs are, and then refer them to the the subject matter expert uh, within our firm who can help their businesses grow through through legal practices. I also, one of the things that I do is to help the provide the value-added services that that we're known for. So uh, I leverage my network of relationships uh, to help that company grow as, as one of our clients. So it could be introductions to uh, sources of capital. It could be introductions to organizations where they will meet uh, prospects, mm-hmm. uh, strategic partners of their own, uh, and then also introduce them to potential clients who are also clients of ours. So it's, it, those are things that don't have to do with providing legal services, but it's a value add for, for our clients. And Susan, how about yourself? Did you ever feel that being a CPA or not being a CPA, sorry, was being, not being a CPA, that give you a, any kind of advantage in the, in the market and were there times where you felt like maybe it held you back in some way? So I was a journalism major I never took a class in business in my life, but what I was taught was how to get the story out of a person so that we could tell it to our readers, okay? So I ask a lot of questions. I don't talk a lot other than to ask questions, and as Ann suggested, that's really just to identify what colleague uh, would be the best source of answer for whatever it is their question is. Um, in some ways, I think it's been a benefit not being an accountant 
because I don't have a clue what the answer is. So I can really focus on figuring out what their question is. Sometimes they don't even know that the, the client doesn't exactly know, but by me rephrasing back to them what I hear them saying, sometimes we've redirected what it was they thought they needed to something else. The other thing I would say is that um, I obviously can't speak for lawyers, but for the attorneys that I work, excuse me, the accountants that I work with, uh, sometimes I think they can be very focused on what it is they know, but they're not so comfortable with maybe what their what our other colleagues do. So it's being able to recognize opportunity for anybody in the firm as just opposed to what it is they specifically are able to do, which means we have a, a lot better shot of bringing them in as a client. So you know, and that's interesting. So I want to follow up on that. Um, when you're a practitioner, and I, I am a practitioner, it is easy to fall into the trap that no matter what you see, it looks like something you do, right? There's a saying that when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So if I were, if I were an auditor and I'm talking to a potential client, then I'm, I'm thinking in terms of um, how would an audit help this client, right? Because that's how I'm wired. It's not that you're a bad person, but that's just sort of what your worldview is, um, whereas the proper treatment of that conversation is to probe and maybe audit falls out of that, maybe tax falls out of that, maybe something entirely different falls out of that. And as more of a, a generalist, if I can use that for lack of a better term, right, that positions you and empowers you to, I guess, be kind of more broadly curious. The other thing I would say is that it's, uh, while it's my job to help identify what the issue is and who the right subject matter expert is, I don't have to know how to do what it is the subject matter experts do. I just have to listen for what are the trigger words for opportunity for every single uh, line of service or business skill set that we have, and then be able to direct them to that. So I, I can give you an example if, if Yeah, you great. Like. We so, love war stories. Okay, so I am sitting at a table for a dinner that has assigned seats at a nonprofit that I've been on the board of for 20 something years. And I sit next to a person who I have no idea how I missed this man, but in 20 something years, I've never ever laid eyes on him. And I asked him about what he did and how long he'd been involved in the organization, so on and so forth. And he tells me about his company. It's a software company and almost as a throwaway line, the very last thing that he says to me after he's described his company is, we just invested $5 million in a new software that we're going to be rolling out to our clients, which are national, um, in the next couple months. And I said, oh, did you get the R&D tax credit? And he said, I don't know what that is. And I said, well, the state will give you money back if your developers are in Georgia. So if you send the work to be done in another country or another state, they're not going to pay. But if it's here in Georgia, he says, well, yeah, it's here in Georgia. And he named the town. And um, he said, tell me more. And I said, hi, I have just told you everything I know about it. But tomorrow morning, I can have one of my colleagues. We have 25 people who specialize in this area help you. Here's my number. Call me at 8 o'clock. Okay. I don't ever have a problem finding a, a colleague who's available for yep, an opportunity. Sure. Okay. That's not a problem. Yep. Um, so I didn't have to know how to do the tax credit study. I just had to recognize the opportunity when he said, we just invested $5 million. Yep. So. Okay. 
So, Anna, I want to ask you this question. Uh, Susan touched upon this um, about five minutes ago, but I'm I'm curious, and I've never asked kind of your origin story. How did you come to land at Morris Manning? Well, it's interesting. I uh, I came to Atlanta in uh, 2004. I worked for the Gallup organization as a consultant and uh, executive coach, and uh, then went to work. I was here. For, for about a year working for Gallup, then was attracted to another startup uh, in, the, in the fintech area and worked there for about a year. And a mutual friend of – I worked for John Yates and uh, a friend of John's who, who I also knew had heard that uh, John was looking for someone who had sales background and was not an attorney but understood the sales process and so he put us together and uh, I interviewed with John and and he was looking for someone so that's that's how it happened and and why why did you feel at that time that that was a good role for you that that, that was a platform where you could be successful that's interesting because i don't i don't know that i could could ever do that for another law firm um it was john John Yates' personality, he um, is how dynamic he ran his sales processes. Mm. Um, it was operated more like a, a real uh, corporation rather than uh, sort of a slow process. I was used to very fast, uh, very successful operations. And it was his, uh, the, the way he viewed the market um also the way they view their their clients the firm is much more than uh or this group is much more than a a transactional law firm they believe in relationships and look at new clients or look at all the clients is how can i make your business grow what can i do to help you in areas other than well just call us when you need uh, need a transaction of some means so um, so that was a big difference, and and the reason I was attracted to working for an industry I, uh, I, that was foreign to me. So an interesting thing that's already emerging is you two like to ask a lot of questions. Yes. Right. And 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 that I, I think that's an important point. It gets back to how do you interview somebody for a role like this? Um, we both know there are people out in the marketplace that sell by telling, basically. Yes. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe in the 1960s and 70s, there was some effectiveness to that, but I'm not sure that's very successful today. And I think that most people I observe who try to sell by telling, uh, I think you get some people that bite on that, but I think that the success rate is a lot less. So is it fair to say that if I'm looking to hire somebody like you, right, probing for somebody that likes to ask a lot of questions might be a good thing to look for? Is that fair? Not only is it fair, but I think maybe another way to say it, Mike, is it's far better to be someone who is interested than interesting. Hmm. I don't ever want to make it about me. I always want to make it about the other person. Um, and so I'm not the story. My colleagues are the story. Um, but in order to get the story, I have to find out what it is that person really needs. And like I said before, sometimes... The, the prospect doesn't even know exactly what it is they need, or they think they know what they need. But by asking enough questions, you find out that that's 
maybe not exactly what the issue is. And, you know, talk about that journalism background being helpful, right? I mean, journalism is the practice of asking questions, Mm -hmm. often from people who don't want to answer questions. (laughs) Well, I try not to be Mike Wallace. Right. uh, (laughs) So um, let me go back to you because Ann said something that, that segues nicely into this. You know, you are successful. I, I know how successful you were and have been at Aprio. And I'm curious, what about that platform when you were in that role put you in a position to be successful? And, and I ask that because if I'm a listener, I'm thinking, gee, I'd, I'd love somebody like Susan or Ann to come to my company, but it's not just enough to hire. I think I got to create an environment for them to be successful. So the way uh, a public accounting firm works is that there are X number of partners that are all co-owners of the firm. And at Aprio, uh, the way it works is there is a place for for partners who are are very, very, obviously they're all very good technically, but some of them are just more outgoing than others. So it kind of became accepted practice that some of them were very, very good at rainmaking and others would probably rather eat a box of rocks than have to go out and talk to, you know, prospects. So um, because I, I just have never really been afraid of talking to people I don't know, it doesn't scare me. Um, my role was to open doors where they hadn't been before. Um, we had a technology practice, really didn't know they didn't know uh, before I came very many venture capitalists. Interestingly enough, venture capital was kind of maybe not as, is not as strong today as private equity was, but 20 something years ago, that was a flip. Um, and so there, because of my prior role, uh, I knew a lot of those people and it was just a question of trading on your name, honestly, to open doors for the new firm. And if you do what you say you're going to do, even if people know um, she's a salesperson, but they don't view me that way because they view me as when I call them, I'm calling them with something for them, usually not asking for something. Um, In this case, I was asking for a meeting uh, to make an introduction and all that could come from it would be more business for both sides, right? So it was a win-win. Yep. So that's, that's what I did was I just opened doors and I had had a 20 plus year career at one big four firm before I came to Aprio and before that a 10 year career at another big four firm. So I've always been a words person in the numbers world. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, in those firms that you worked in, um, was there anything they did or maybe could have done better to put you in a position to be more successful. And I, I'm asking that question because I, I, I'd like to try to, I like to try to drill down to if, if one of our listeners decides that they want to go the route of hiring somebody like you, or maybe it may, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe I'm, I'm asked, I'm asking a question that I think I know the answer to, and I actually don't, does it matter? Or is, is hiring the right person with the right approach with the right Rolodex so important that maybe it's just get out of their way and let them do their thing. So um, to answer a couple questions or comments that you've made, the first is um, I made sure it was never about me. It's always about helping others. 
And you alluded to the fact that there's been a, a very high turnover rate amongst salespeople typically. <clears throat> I think there are some people that want it to be about them. I didn't know that there was an expression. I mean, this was 30-something years ago, but which I don't know that it had been exactly coined yet or I hadn't heard it, called servant leadership. It's never about me. It's always about taking care of other people, hopefully. And um, that's where I get my satisfaction from. I don't need to be the star. As a matter of fact, I don't even want to be on stage. I'm way more happy to be behind the curtain, um, pulling the levers and strings. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I would say, is I think you have to be willing to let others be the star. And too many salespeople, my observation, why they're not successful, is that they want to be the star. Um, and that just isn't helpful for either our colleagues uh, who really are the stars? Because as Anne referred to them as subject matter experts, that's they're they're the ones who have the answers, not me. Um, and then the other thing is, really, it needs to be all about the client, not or prospect, not about the salesperson. So just turn the I pronoun out of your vocabulary and and just pretend it doesn't exist. That's, that's the way to think about it. So, and you've been in, in your role for uh, you know a long time and I suspect, but don't know, you've probably seen others in that role, whether it's in your firm or others sort of come and go. Um, why are you different? Why do you think you're different? <laughs> I'm not going to use the word special cause you'll never let me get away with that, yeah, but I think you'll let wonderful. me get away with different. No, she she's is wonderful, but, <laughs> but I, I, but, but there is something different, right? I, I, you know, it's, if if you are around, say a year longer than everybody else, right? That's a, that's a statistical anomaly. When it's a lot longer than everybody else, clearly there's something structural there. So, and if you don't want to talk about yourself, that's fine. Maybe just contrast with what others have done where they have not been successful. What mistakes do you see other salespeople make? Well, I think Susan touched on it. I think it's important as a business developer salesperson that that you have the maturity to understand the sales process with a service organization. Um, and the important person or people in the, the, uh, the equation are, it will be the company and the attorney who they have the relationship with um, or attorneys, multiple relationships. And for a salesperson, you have to understand um, as Susan said, you are not the key person. You are not the key personality. Um, you are the, the go-between and the facilitator for the relationship. Uh, the company has to have the primary relationship with the attorney in our case. And because that's who they will trust, who they are relying on to make help them make very important decisions about the future of their company, um, and, and their employees. And so, um, it's the, the business developer or salesperson has to understand that. Um, it's also a different role than I have had as a salesperson, uh, in the past. And I don't, I don't close the relationship. I don't close the, the, the win. Uh, I, I make the introduction to our to our our attorney and then it's a handoff and i can't close the win right so um so that 
that takes another level, I think, of understanding and um, actions. <laughs> uh, it in that I help coach the attorney. You know, it's such a hard position to be the one who's making the widget, the one who's providing the the service, and then also the sales the salesperson. And you have those two distinct roles in, in companies, but you don't as attorneys. So um, I help coach the attorney. I mean, they're working on deals. They're working on they're, – they're creating the, the legal product. Um, but then they also need to nurture the relationships of, of prospects. And um, as, I, as I tell them, don't dig the well when you're thirsty – uh, you, you need to be part of the sales process all along, even though you're very busy with providing providing the services. But I will coach attorneys and help them with uh, closing the deal, closing closing getting the the, the client in. So, um, but that primary relationship is with them. So one thing that falls out of both of what you said, and another kind of talking point, is. I think a common thread is humility, and it it it, it I, I'm sure it sounds intuitive to the two of you. But if you think about how we portray somebody who's in sales in the media, right? Think about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? <laughs> Always be closing, hard charging, high ego, right? And and, and you sort of have to own everything. Um, but in, in my experience, I'm curious about your, if you agree, you know, in, in a lot of way, in a lot of respects, business development can kind of be like trying to swing a baseball bat. The tighter you grip it, the less it, the less well it works, <laughs> right? The harder you try in some respects, the less it, the less it works, right? So is, is it fair to say that if I'm interviewing somebody for that role, another thing I want to look for besides curiosity and the, the ability and desire to ask questions I guess is also some, frankly, some humility to it. It's a funny um, line that you walk because you have to be confident enough that you can call on a CEO or a CFO and expect that that person is going to take your call because you have some prior relationship and respect with each other. But then you also have to be willing to take a step back once that person has agreed to meet with you that someone else is really the reason why they're there. So it is just, it is a little bit odd. Um, I think you're also looking for your listeners for some ideas about what are things that are helpful um, when you are looking to hire a business development person. I would say the other thing is don't look for someone who expects this to be a regular job, a nine to five job. I mean, Um, there are countless breakfasts and dinners that Ann and I have been at that require very, very long days. It's almost like a school bus driver. You're really busy in the morning, you're really busy in the evening, and then you kind of, in the middle of the day is when you're doing all of your prep work for the next couple of meetings. But when you are going to these meetings, you're not just walking in cold. You're doing your homework ahead of time. What is the group about? Who can I expect to be there? Are there people that I am particularly looking for? How do I connect people who I meet there with resources that will be helpful for them? All of that is happening before or after meetings, but it is um, a lot of very long days, and you have to find people who are willing to make those kinds of time commitments, I think. I also think there typically are, are two different kinds of 
salespeople, hunters, and, and farmers. And I think this is a combination of those roles. You have to really be hungry and be a hunter, but you also have to have to be a farmer in that you're nurturing relationships, you're doing coaching. It, there are some additional um, characteristics besides just being the Glenn Garrigan, Glenn Ross, um, you know, dialing for dollars kind of, Right. Kind of, uh, Coffee's for closers. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, and 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 that balance is going to is going to depend a little bit on the oh, actually a lot I think on the nature of the industry that you're yes. in. Yes. Right. <clears throat> in professional services, a lot of farming because that person may or may not need that service at a particular point in time. Right. For me, it, it can be a two year sales cycle. Uh, maybe accounting less because everybody needs to file a tax return <clears throat> or some some place in the middle. On the other hand. If it's somebody that does flood remediation, then that's a very short sale cycle, yeah. right? So <laughs> you sort of have to understand kind of where, where you fall in the continuum. Uh, I put one loaded question into the list, um, but you guys had a chance to see it. and You didn't tell me I couldn't ask it, so I'm going to ask it because I, I, do think, I do think it's relevant. The two of you happen to be women. I knew it was going to be question number eight. <laughs> the two of you happen to be women. Do you think that – has impacted your ability to be successful in your respected roles, either in a positive or a negative way. Um, I don't, know, I don't since, want to go all me too, since but I've nev- <laughs> since I've never been a man, I don't know that I can answer that. Okay. But I can tell you that it became very clear when I was uh, in my prior firm um, working strictly with venture capitalists that when I would go to the National Venture Capital Association's annual meeting, uh, I was one of a handful of women in a room of a 1,000 people. And so how are you going to stand out? And I chose to use bright colors. So uh, people who know me know that I'm always wearing – I never wear black or navy unless I'm going to a funeral. That's true. I've never seen you in either of those colors, yeah. as long as I've known you. Yeah. That's right. And so you have to do something to stand out in a crowd and be different, um, especially when there are competitors who do se- who do not have a business development person but send their practitioners to the same events I'm at. How am I going to relate to people in a way that will be memorable when I personally can't answer their questions? Uh, technical questions. And so I've chosen to do it with being personal, um, asking about family, remembering things personally about that person. Do I think a man would do that? I don't think so. I've, I've yet to meet one who, who ever remembers anything personal about other people. They just, <laughs> they just, I mean, at a networking event, they just don't, or they don't ask about it. And I think being a woman, it's safer to ask those kinds of questions without feeling like, Maybe the person thinking, "Why is this person getting so personal?" That it's it's more accepted. Yeah. Yes. And how about you? Oh, I don't. I, I really don't think gender has much to do with it. I I do think, as far as salespeople go, I think women women may have an edge for some of the reasons that uh, that Susan Susan listed. especially in tech, right? I mean, there aren't that many women in tech. Period. Yeah. Oh, well, that's true. But it's interesting. I, I go to, a, of course, we, we go to a lot of events, and there are not a lot of women typically in the room. Um, and I don't notice that anymore. I don't, I don't it, either. It's not even a, a 
something that is a factor and and uh but a you know, we, we are good about um, making connections and, and probing without, without seeming to be um, too direct. And, and maybe more natural empathy, too. And more natural empathy. Um, I, I think that may be a factor. So um, another question I want to make sure we, we get through. We don't have a ton of time left, but this is one I've, I've got to make sure I ask. You know, and and you and I were talking a little bit about this before we we came on. Imagine that you're going to hire your successor. What is an interview question you would make sure you want to ask your successor? What would they have to answer for you in a great way to say? And you'll tell John Yates, you know, John, when I'm ready to hang it up and I'm ready to be on a beach in Tahiti, this is the person you got to hire because they answered this question great. Mm. Oh, Mike, that is a tough one. Um, one question. How good are you at at putting putting the client first? Uh, representing the client to the firm and then representing the firm to the client um, instead of instead of making this a personal quest it's uh, it's it's a way to I mean it has to be all about helping that helping that company that client grow and um, and the depth of relationship and I'd like to know about the experience that the the interviewer or interviewee would have with with those kinds of relationships and uh and then the whole coaching factor of helping attorneys to be successful because that's that's a good part of what this job entails um and it's providing tools for them it's is providing answers is providing coaching in a way that uh that they can they can tolerate that's that's nudges and, and not uh here comes the wisdom yeah and and um that that that's really interesting because i've i've long thought of both of you as as much as anything being air traffic controllers Right. Controlling yes. con- connections and coordinations and stuff. And, and the way you describe that role, um, it, I, I think may be different than one of a lot of our listeners thought going in. Because we, mm. we, we, you know, the, the, the notion of sales for many people, when you think of it, is a unidirectional process. Right. I've got something I'm going to communicate to you and you want to buy it. But the way you describe it, is once you initiate that relationship, now you are representing the client back to the firm as well and yes. to make sure they're treated well yes. and they're treated appropriately and they get the right service. And even if, and I'm, I'm going to step out here, but I suspect this is true, even if sometimes that may mean that you're not the right firm to serve them yes. necessarily, right? We're not, you know, not all things to all people can't be if you're successful. That's right. And, and so it's very interesting. I think there's a big learning point in there for, for that, for that piece of advice and the way you'd ask that question. Susan, you have a little bit of extra time to noodle on that. You're interviewing, you're, you're interviewing the next director of business development for Aprio. What do you ask him? 
describe how, when you were given a prospect's name, the, a company or a nonprofit, not necessarily a person, and you don't know a single person at that company, but you have to get in the door of the CEO, how would you do it? What would you, what are the steps you would take to open that door and how long would it take you to get there? Oh, that's good. Now, there's a, that last part is loaded, <laughs> I think, because the knee-jerk reaction is, the knee-jerk reaction may be, well, I could get in there in two weeks. How would you do it? Because you, because you want to show that you're quick and effective, right? And then I can see on your face that SO face of skepticism, like, uh-uh, <laughs> it ain't two weeks, man, <laughs> right? We're, we're talking months. You're probably looking mm-hmm. at months what, if you're going to sell them the way that you think that is, is, is yeah. appropriate and realistic, right? Yeah. Two weeks is boiler room territory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, that's just nonsense, and it's not going to work. So you've already identified yourself as a phony in my book. <laughs> so um, two more questions, and, and we've got to go and, and let you guys get back to your, your day jobs. Um, how much has social media played a role in what you guys do? Are you guys social media people at all? I'm, I know the answer to this question to some extent, but our listeners don't. I'll defer to Anne because for me, it's irrelevant. <laughs> so I'm just being honest. Well, but we, I mean, we have a marketing department that uses social media, right. but do I, uh, I, I live on LinkedIn if that is considered social media. Yeah, I think so. It is. Um, so I live on that, but, um, tweeting and posting stuff and all of that, I completely defer to the queen of it, which is Anne. Cause I, I just, I don't do any of that stuff. I use it to learn, but I don't use it to push, the company probably I should, but I just don't. If I ever see a selfie of you on Instagram, I'm calling the police <laughs> because I know you've, been you've clearly been kidnapped, <laughs> and that is a cry for help. And somebody's going to be dropping a hundred thousand dollars in a parking lot somewhere to get you back. There, there's a newspaper next to her head to show yeah. proof of life. Exactly. <laughs> um, and how about you? Well, I use LinkedIn quite a bit, yeah, and for a lot of different things do a lot of research on linkedin i i post articles uh that i find very interesting that i think will be of interest to uh, the people i know they're they're usually business articles uh really engaging ideas yep. that i think will help companies grow based on on my background um i post events for organizations that I belong to, I think that's important in in uh, in getting support for the things that I support. Uh, of course, I repost all of the MMM items right. that I think people should know about. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's very valuable. I think that's a great sort of lifeline that that helps it helps bring life to to what. I'm trying to accomplish yep. it. Uh, it it is a branding tool, yep. and uh, that lets people know know me a little bit better personally because of the things that I say or post, especially the articles. I've had people uh, approach me at events and say, "Oh yeah, I recognize you. I've seen you on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. and I've, I follow the articles that you post. So it's it's been of some value wow. that way. You get recognized. Yeah. Uh, yes. 
and and so um, so that's a point of conversation then um, to get to to know somebody to get to know a company so um, you know I give kudos to people and it's it's just uh, it's a it's a nice nice outlet now when I post things on um, on LinkedIn I will then sometimes check the box for it to be posted on on Twitter yeah and then Facebook is purely purely social really yeah. Yeah. So we are uh, unfortunately out of time. I, I, I could easily lock the door and, and trap these ladies here for a couple more hours, but that would be unfair to them and, and also illegal. So we're going to have to wrap up. There's so much more we could talk about, but if somebody listening would like to contact you, they have questions about this process. Can they do that? Absolutely. Please. And if so, uh, and h- how best to contact you? Uh, email and no, a McDonald at mmmlaw.com. Susan? And I'm Susan.odwyer. And yes, I do have an apostrophe in my email. It's O apostrophe D W Y E R at aprio, A P R I O.com. And I would welcome your questions or any way I can help you. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Ann McDonald and Susan O'Dwyer so much for joining us and sharing their expertise with us today. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.